Let's turn to Romans 11 again this morning, please. Romans chapter 11, and also Psalm, the 29th Psalm, Psalm 29, with an appropriate word for our times and trials. I'm glad the prayers are continuing for the natural disasters that are occurring in Texas, Louisiana, and other places, and the relief that, and the recovery efforts, and for those who are involved in those, also for those in the path of the other hurricane, Irma, who's coming up the coast. And we have the opportunity, not only of prayer, but also for contributions. That's why we have those slips out there for, I'm particularly impressed by Samaritan's Purse, which is Franklin Graham's organization which brings relief specifically in the name of Jesus Christ. And you see that when they bring relief, as they did recently to the ravaged St. Martin, the island of St. Martin's, that they bring also people come to them in lines for prayer. And they bring supplies, necessary food, and necessary water, and it's quite a thing. So you have the opportunity not only of prayer but contributions to them, to Red Cross, the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, and, of course, to our all-time collaborators and co-laborers, the Salvation Army. And so I appreciate your prayers, especially since I do have some very dear people and my family that are in the apparent cone that's going up the coast. So we're trusting God going beyond prayer and trusting him, for sure. And uh, my, my family's all holed up, and they're going to be holed up in one place and hunkered down. So, all right, I thank you for your prayers, and let's keep that up. Psalm 29, but before we get there, also I want to remind you that tomorrow night at Eaton Park, Eaton Park is being sanctified by the presence of believers from Tetelestai, and Steve Zvonik is hosting and moderating a discussion on the spiritual life in Jesus Christ and how it meets and overcomes the adversities and afflictions of this life. And so that's at the Eaton Park and Waterworks, a sanctified place, tomorrow night, 7 to 8. And all are welcome, and I understand that he has quite a team being built around him now, so that's, that's a good thing. So I told Pastor Brown I'd continue the prayer as we can continue this prayer as a kind of chain. I thank the congregation for their prayers. Last night, apparently, there was a pretty large prayer group going on at 10 o'clock for across the country. And we should not forget those who have suffered and endured this thing in Texas because it's not over there. It's not over when the storm's over. It's, it's several weeks, months, sometimes years of recovery, but God can be glorified in it, and that's the point. It, this is an opportunity, and in fact, it's at, the whole thing is an opportunity to look unto him and to give him glory, as Psalm 29 says, and I want to read that. I told my sister Becky to read it today when they get together, or tomorrow, or when, whenever it is, Psalm 29.1. I woke up with this one about 4.48 this morning. A Davidic psalm, give the Lord... You heavenly beings, that's Elohim, give the Lord glory and strength. Give the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. 
The voice of the Lord is above the waters. Our attention has to be on the voice of the Lord that's above the waters. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord, again, in verse 3, is above the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord above vast waters. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits enthroned. King forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And Father, we thank you for that assurance today that you bless your people with peace and that you give your people strength for adversity, strength for testing and trials, strength for the tests that are facing many of us right now in this country and tests of both natural and man-made disaster, which will yet come to this country and to places that sit safe today. We thank you, Father, that we can focus our attention on the voice of him who speaks from heaven, as Hebrews twelve twenty-five and 26 says, and that we can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church, that we can receive strength for adversities and we ask that strength to be given and poured out to those in the way and in the wake of the hurricanes that are occurring now of the floods of the many things that are occurring in terms of adversity may the attention of millions be drawn to you and may the ends of the earth look to you and be saved Preserve life, Father. Preserve even, miraculously, property. Preserve human life, animal life. Aid and rescue efforts and recovery efforts. And may the renewal that comes be greater than what existed before. But again, Father, our zeal, our enthusiasm, our desire is that the eyes of many be lifted and the ears be attuned to the voice of the one who sits enthroned above all this drama and above all this disaster. Turn, therefore, our nation in her attention to you because we confess along with and for all of our nation a lack of attentiveness to you a lack of prioritizing of your word, a lack of reverence for the name of Jesus Christ. And we confess this as we identify with the population of our nation. And Father, we understand and we get it when you seek to gain our attention. 
And we thank you now, Father. Grant us then this attentiveness that we need today as we continue unwaveringly and unrelentingly in the study of your word. We thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to go over Romans 11, starting at verse 1 again, running the iron over the garment, maybe getting rid of a few more wrinkles, and repeating some of the most treasured principles that come from this chapter. Romans 11. Paul, my translation, I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And I reply, most certainly not. Where he's going with this is, hey, Gentile Christians, curb your enthusiasm. Meaning, if your enthusiasm is that the Israel was broken off, that you could be grafted in, that branches were broken off the tree, that you can be grafted in, he said, Think again. God has not rejected his people. He will graft in those branches again, supernaturally, not according to nature, but according to super nature, according to his divine action. You are privileged that the root bears you, Gentiles. You don't bear the root. The root bears you. And the Israel of God is not a Gentile church, nor is it a Jewish church. It's an altogether new thing. It's an altogether new creation. It's a prolepsis of what's coming. It is the anticipation of a universal restoration. And if any person is in Christ, there's a new creation. The Israel of God is a new creation. It isn't just Jews and it isn't just Gentiles. So Gentiles, curb your enthusiasm if your enthusiasm is rooted in arrogance and conceit. That somehow you're special and that Israel has been forsaken because of you. That's a wrong way to think. God has not rejected his people. Verse 2 also says it. So I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And I reply, most certainly not. For I myself, says Paul, we've called him and this is what he said. I myself am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he previously chose. Or are you not aware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. How many times do people plead? They have committed murder. They have committed blasphemy. Surely you're going to send them to hell. Surely you're going to damn them. Surely you should. But this denies the cross, of course. Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And Elijah says, I myself alone am left remaining, meaning I'm a one-man remnant. And they are seeking to kill me too. But what was the divine response? This was a special divine oracle, an announcement, an oracular announcement to Elijah by God. I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. We've taught how those 7,000 are a prolepsis of the turning of all of Israel. They're the fulcrum and the pivot for the turning of all of Israel and the salvation of all of Israel in Elijah's time. In the same way, then, Paul says, there is a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. 
Now, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be no more grace. It would lose its very essential character, is what he's talking about. And the essential character of grace is its unconditionality. It's no conditions required. We're talking here about divine actions today. We're talking here about a divine series of actions that do not enlist the help of a fallen creation or of any human beings or of any pious works or morality or ethics on the part of human beings. We're talking about divine actions, and that's coming up in a moment. And that's what I want to draw our attention toward. What then? Verse 7. Israel did not find what it was looking for. But the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. Just as it stands written, God has given them. Notice this is a divine action. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear even to this day. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. This is God speaking. God's action producing man's rejection. Hard to swallow for people that want to hold on to the citadel of their free will in Adam. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be continually bent over. Now I'm going to relate to you something about that again. Dia pantos here is a phrase that was translated by certain translations as forever. And it's an entirely wrong thing. It means continuously, but it doesn't mean forever. Paul goes on to explain that there's a temporary situation where God gives them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, and it is temporary, and that it's partial, and that it's for a saving reason that God does it, a reason of saving the world, reconciling the world to himself, saving the Gentiles, and then all Israel, including its hardened part, will be saved. The forever translation is entirely false. And I'm going to quote to you a new commentary I'm reading by Leander Keck, K-E-C-K. And it's from 2005. And he makes the same observation I made last week. And I didn't read it until this past few days. So please note, however, that it is God who gave them a spirit of stupor. It is God's action, not human action. This is God's action by which he imprisons all in disobedience. This is going up to 1132, the climactic verse, the peak of the mountain we're climbing. The voice of the Lord not only allows the deer to give birth, but gives the deer a kind of feet that can negotiate the high mountainous places. And that's what God has given to us. We're riding the high places. We're climbing and we're not settling on any of the precipices of this mountain we're going all the way to the top and celebrating with paul the all-inclusive saving work of god in christ in romans eleven thirty-three to 36 we will not stop nothing will deter us 
Nothing will stop our unrelenting pursuit. Nothing has for 40 years. Nothing will in the next 40. It's God who's doing this. It's God who's both willing and doing in us. This is God's action, which is part of his plan to imprison all in disobedience. He's already shown, and the teacher has hammered this home in Romans 1, 18 to 32, the disobedience of the pagans, the disobedience of the Gentiles. And then Paul says, yeah, but what about you? You're without excuse. You've judged these people, and you, you yourself do the same things. He's talking, therefore, about God's summing up of the whole human race in disobedience, imprisoning them so he can let everybody out of the prison by his pure mercy. That's God's plan. That's God's action. Salvation is of the Lord, not of you, not of me, not of prophets, not of saints. It is from the Lord. And we're going to see this even more emphatically in Romans 4. I'm prepping up for that study soon. In fact, I might have to take on Romans the whole thing, which is will be the biggest challenge of my career as a preacher. That may be coming up soon. And so in the same vein, Jesus spoke in parables precisely so that they wouldn't hear, so that they wouldn't understand. The parables made sure they didn't understand. And before you talk about hardened Israel, how about the church trying to interpret parables in which they constantly see an eternal hell in them that isn't there, a forever that isn't there? That's because the church has largely been hardened in our own time. They are still our brothers. They are still our sisters. They are still in Christ. But we have been hardened also. Jesus spoke in parables just so they wouldn't understand. But blessed are your eyes, he said. There is an elect according to the unconditional grace of God. Blessed are your eyes because they see, he said to his disciples, whose hearts were still hardened in some regards, and they were believers with hardened hearts. But God's action imprisons all in disobedience categorizes everybody as disobedient so that he can have mercy on all. God only has mercy on one category of human beings, the disobedient. So, in this same vein, Jesus spoke in parables so that they would hear and not understand, squint to see and yet not see, strain their eyes, strain their ears and still not get it. We're going to be hitting one of those parables, the parable of the wheat and tares. People assume that that means God's dividing the human race up into believers and unbelievers, and he's putting the believers in silos and barns, and he's putting unbelievers in eternal hell. That is a perfect, that interpretation shows that the interpreter has not heard, the interpreter has not seen, and may just have a hardened heart. The most immoral doctrine you can hold is the doctrine of an eternal hell. It creates immorality. It creates judgmentalism. It creates self-righteousness. It it creates the desire for vindictiveness and vengeance. It portrays God in the light that he does not demonstrate. It portrays and betrays God instead of portraying God the light of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. So 
This same blindness is given to people in the church who reveal their scotosis, their blindness, their hardness, in their failure to see the meaning of parables of Jesus, in which they often see a forever punishment and everlasting hell. Now, God's action of hardening a part of Israel is not to say that God would never convert or heal them. He said, I've given them a spirit of stupor lest they should hear and be converted and I should heal them. I I don't want to do that. Not now. Because doing that, I'm holding open the gates for the Gentiles to come in and then opening them wide for all Israel to be saved. That's God's wisdom. Who would have thought it? Who would have counseled him? Which one of us would have the wisdom to say, this is what you ought to do? Only God. And he does not receive the attention and the worship and the honor and the glory that is due to him from this nation. And so though we see these disasters, I don't rule out the one word that we'd love to avoid called judgment. I don't rule it out. And those who sit safe should not, well, they should curb their enthusiasm, thinking they're exempt from these floods and fires and things that men do with their evil weaponry. this, This nation is not exempt. It's not even special. It's not even special. God is special. His son is special. His word is special. He deserves glory. Glory is due to him. He is the preserver of life in disaster. He is the miraculous restorer. He is the restorer of the breach. He lives above the flood. He lives above the clouds. He lives above the fires. And if we pass through them, we will not be harmed. If we pass through the fires like the three Hebrew boys, we will be rescued by the fourth man in the fire. If we pass through the floods, they will not drown us. If we pass through these things, God will preserve us. And I like what the Hebrew boys said to Nebuchadnezzar, even if he doesn't, we won't bend our knee to you. Even if he doesn't. Because even if he doesn't deliver us, he takes us home. That's where we want to be anyways. So, I didn't intend this today, but I guess I am a preacher as well as a teacher. That was God's action, not mine. God's idea, not mine. I ran from that idea. Their spiritual deafness and blindness and stupor and bent under a yoke of slavery is not forever. And it has a saving purpose. Beside the part that was hardened, some eyes were blessed to see. These were the elect according to God's action of unconditional grace mediated by Jesus Christ and no one else. There is no other mediator of this grace but Jesus Christ between God and man. The only mediator is the God man. No other mediator. Leander E. Keck from the Abingdon 
New Testament commentaries on Romans wrote this on page 267 to 268. I, wrote every, I read everything he could say on Romans 11, and I got this one, one quote. He says, translating dia pantos, which I just showed you, in verse 10 as forever, and then he cites certain culprits, the New Revised Standard Version. He said, he's, I'm, not, I'm just saying what he said, NRSV, NIV just in case you're NIV positive, NASB, my fa- one of my old favorites, New American Standard Bible, and another one, the New Jerusalem Bible. They all translated this forever, and I'll add one, ESV, the English Standard Version. Translating diapontos, as these translators did, instead of translating it as forever, instead of continuously or unceasingly, as the revised English Bible, R-E-B, he says, did, implies that God's action in Paul's time continues endlessly in the future, an inference that has legitimated the pernicious, and I'll say that that means, in case you don't know, the destructive notion that Jews are perpetually suffering because they did not become Christians. That's a destructive, pernicious, evil, conceited notion on the part of certain Gentile Christians. He goes on to say, but Paul goes on to argue that the plight of the currently hardened, quote, part of Israel has not caused God to annul the whole people's election. W-H-O-L-E, the whole people's election. Rather, in the future, God will annul the present unbelief of the hardened part. So the whole people will be saved. There's a whole bunch of commentators now since Barth, really, in 1933 on Romans, who are in one pack in the race. And they're all kind of leaning toward this, and I think one of us has to break out, and one of us or two of us or three of us in our time has to break out from the pack and say explicitly what these guys don't quite dare to say about the rectification of all humanity and the transformation of all of creation as an act of God. In fact... It's an act that's instantaneous, as instantaneous as resurrection, as we'll see. Romans 11.11, so Paul says, so I, Paul, say, rebuking the NRSV translation, rebuking the NIV translation, rebuking the New American Standard Bible, rebuking the New Jerusalem Bible and the English Standard Version, Paul says this. I called him this morning. He told me this. I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? He uses two words. They haven't patio to pipto, have they? It goes back to the race metaphor, the foot race metaphor that he talks about in Romans 9. It's not of him that runs or of him that wills. It is not of him that does and say, now you do because I did. It is not of him that runs or of him that wills even, but of God who shows mercy. 
They haven't tripped in that race, he says, in order to fall down headlong and get disqualified from the race, have they? They haven't gone on the permanently disabled list, have they? They aren't on DL forever, are they? They didn't trip to fall headlong, did they? Of course not. Of course they didn't. Impossible. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans, the disobedient pagans, to provoke Israel to jealousy. But if their misstep, please notice that word misstep, paraptoma, is bringing riches to the world, riches to the world is the, isn't just material wealth. It's, you, curb your enthusiasm. If you think God has stripped Israel of its wealth to make America wealthy in a capitalistic sense, curb that enthusiasm, Gentile. You're conceited. He's talking about the riches that are had in association with Christ, the Messiah, that are given now freely to the Gentiles, to pagans, as well as to Jews in the remnant, as we have seen. And so the church is not a Gentile church. God didn't take stuff away from Israel to give it to the Gentiles. The church isn't a Gentile church, neither is it a Jewish church. It's an altogether different and new thing created right now, being created now. It's an altogether new thing, altogether. That's what you are. If by their misstep, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world and their defeat, riches or their loss, riches for the Gentiles, that's the riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8, how much more will their fullness bring them? Their fullness means that Paul anticipates the pleroma or the total salvation of all of Israel, including the hardened part, including the branches broken off. I've read commentaries that they say, well, see, Paul doesn't know. He's a city boy, so he doesn't understand grafting because he's talking about stuff that you just don't do. You don't graft wild branches onto a cultivated olive tree, and I say, exactly, you don't. That's a divine action. Paul's talking, Paul isn't flubbing up agriculture. He's not failing botany. He's talking about an action that God alone can perform. He brings the wild branches, the wild pagans into the cultivated olive tree. That's his action, not man's action. That's not horticulturally correct. That's divine action that Paul's talking about. You see, the blindness is still in interpreters. So when you read commentaries and you read other people, there's a lot of great theologians. A lot of them are in a pack on the race. Time to break through the pack. It's time to head for this and sprint for the... And that means taking some pretty daring actions, which we will take and have taken and will continue to take because our courage comes from God. Our courage before men is due to confidence in God. Our courage before storms for ourselves and others, comes from confidence in the living God. That's where our confidence lies. 
And even if God does not spare our physical lives in a disaster, he has given us the greatest life by taking us to be with himself. But we expect him to preserve life, not only of people, but of animals, as Jonah said in the last verse of of Jonah 4. He said, in fact, Yahweh said this, you should be rejoicing, Jonah, sitting under your little plant that just dissolved in front of your eyes. You should rejoice that I saved everybody in Nineveh and many animals, all their animals too. God hasn't forgotten the animals. I have to be reminded of that. So, I don't think about them as much as some of you do. I don't think about animals as much as some of you do, but I see them, and I see them in those commercials. I can't handle it. I can't handle the suffering dogs and the eyes of the cats. And so I, I, cannot, I can't do it, and I have to appeal to God and say, please have mercy on these poor animals. Rescue them, and then you want to tell him to take the owners that did that to him and throw them into eternal fire forever and ever and ever, but you can't because God has mercy even on those morons. Now, now never mind. I just, as the New Yorker said, don't get me started. Now, so, if their rejection means the riches of Christ distributed through the world and the reconciliation of the world. What do you think their fullness is going to be? They're going to have a fullness. They're all going to come into the fullness of salvific blessing. All of them are. We're talking about a temporary situation here and then a permanent one yet to come. Now listen carefully. Their acceptance will be, according to Romans eleven fifteen, life from the dead. Let's just read ahead just for a moment first, and then I'm going to back up again. Romans eleven thirteen. but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And I think of my father speaking to me after throwing the lucky strike into the wastebasket at age 11. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm magnifying or expanding the effect of my ministry if by so doing I may provoke my flesh. Fellow Israelites, I consider to be my flesh all the members of the body of Christ. My flesh. They are my flesh. I consider, in fact, on another level, my countrymen in America to be my flesh. Not just my family as my flesh. In fact, I'm beginning to consider all of humankind as my flesh. My flesh. Paul said, my flesh. You can't get much more intimate than that if so by so doing i may provoke my flesh those are fellow israelites in paul's case paul's brothers his countrymen by physical descent i want to provoke them to jealousy and save some of them paul expected some of them to be saved during the course of this evil age he expected all of them to be saved at the end of the evil age listen that's a very important principle god expected Paul expected some of his kinsmen, the hardened part of Israel, to be saved even during the course of this evil age. But he expected all of them to be saved at the end of this evil age, at the parousia, the coming of Christ, in which there will be a general bodily resurrection and universal Israelite salvation. Now, 
For you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and we hit that a little bit last week, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead, the acceptance of Israel in the future, and the total eschatological acceptance of all of Israel in the future, is an act of God just as much as resurrection from the dead has to be an act of God. If, as Ezekiel 36, make that 26, yeah, 36, 26 and 26, 27 says, if you can, under anesthesia and a spirit of stupor, perform your own heart transplant, you can save yourself. If you can cause your own bodily resurrection after you're dead, you can save yourself. But taking out the stony heart and putting in a new heart is an action of God. Resurrecting the dead is an action of God. Creating something, bringing it into existence out of nothing is an act of God. If you can do that, if you can create a universe of proportionate being, heavens and earth, you can save yourself. We're talking about a divine action here. In fact, the righteousness of God is his divine action exclusive of human help. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. The righteousness of God is his act of deliverance without enlisting creaturely help. That's what's being revealed in the gospel. And so you wonder, if that's not being revealed, is the gospel being preached? That's not to to divide the church. That's to challenge all of us so the church can be united. This whole thing, in fact, my whole ministry that God has given to me is directed toward the unity of the church, the unifying of believers, not the divisiveness, which destroys a church, destroys a nation, destroys a generation. So as we've seen, these riches amount to salvation for the Gentiles. The point is that Israel's temporary and partial rejection, which God caused, is the acceptance of the Gentiles. God caused their rejection because God sent his son to die on the cross. God sent his son, gave his son. And he didn't give him and then stand back and let him get punished. He accompanied him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Historically speaking, it's because of Israel's rejection. But God engineered Israel's rejection, even as he will engineer their total acceptance. It's God's action. Makes me step back and look at him and say, wow. Makes me go beyond the drama and above the drama and see him seated enthroned, but not seeing him unfeeling. Because in Exodus it says, I have heard the cries of my people. And I have come down to deliver them. I've heard the cries of my people. And I've come down, Yahweh says, in the person of Jesus, to deliver them. We're going to get into the Exodus connection very deeply in the near future. And so the point is, Israel's temporary and partial rejection is the acceptance of the Gentiles and... 
as we just read in Romans 11:15, their temporary loss is gain for the whole world. Temporary loss. That means their hardening is temporary. That means they're being broken off from the olive tree as branches broken off is temporary. Branches broken off go through the fire of testing and trial, but they're not forsaken. They're grafted in again. You say, you don't graft in broken off branches. That's not horticulturally possible or correct. Well, there's, that's arguable for one thing. But the point is, it's a divine action. Paul isn't horticulturally or agriculturally being stupid here. He's not a city boy that's not aware of the country. He is talking about divine action, like the parables are talking about divine action, like the leavening of the whole lump of dough. And like the separation, not wheat and tares doesn't mean separation of believers from unbelievers. It means the separation of the unbeliever in you from the believer in you and in all humankind. It's the casting off of the Adamic ontology. And we'll see how that plays. I know that some of you are interested in that parable, and I told you I'd teach on it, and I guess I'll have to. So their acceptance, Paul says, will be life from the dead inasmuch as this can only be the act of God. The total acceptance of Israel is like an act of resurrection from death into life. Only God can do it. I always wondered, well, how is he going to do it? What I can't picture it happening. How is God going to save all of Israel? He's going to save all of Israel in an instant, just like in an instant he raised his son from death into life. It's going to happen in an eschatological moment at the end of this age. It's God's action. I anticipate God's action. I can't figure it out. The depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God is beyond reckoning. It's beyond figuring it out. It's unsearchable. It's incalculable. It's inestimable. All I can do is worship. So, their acceptance will be life from the dead, as Romans eleven fifteen says, inasmuch as this can only be the act of God. The eschatological and total acceptance of Israel by God and their total acceptance of God's Messiah, Jesus, at the same time, is as much the act of God as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an act of God. It's exclusively, in fact. So the total acceptance of Israel will concur with their resurrection from the dead, bodily. And will, in fact, be life from the dead in reality, even as the valley of dry bones apocalyptically revealed in Ezekiel 37. What can bones do? God says, Dead, dried bones. What can they do? They're dried up. They don't even have any marrow left in them. We're talking about skeletal remains scattered across a valley. What can they do? What can bones do? God says, I say to these bones, live. Can these bones live? Ezekiel said, only you know, Lord. Son of man. 
small s, meaning mere mortal, we would say. Hey, mere mortal, Ezekiel, can these bones live? He saw the vision. He says, Lord, you know. And then he sees a vision of flesh coming on the bones. God says, live. He comes upon an aborted fetus tossed aside in Ezekiel 16. And he said, it was a time of love. And I said to her, live. And she lived. It's a command of God. It's an act of God. It's God's action in Christ. It isn't, I've done this. I'm do this. It's God is due glory because he shows mercy. It is not him that runs It's not him that does pious works. It isn't him that gets baptized. It isn't him that gets baptized and then witnesses and prays and goes to church and fellowships and gives and gives his body to be burned in martyrdom. It is God who shows mercy. It isn't Boston strong. It isn't Florida strong. It isn't Texas resilient. It's God's grace. That whole thing, I got so sick of hearing how special New Yorkers are. A lot of broken arms happen, and by people patting themselves on the back. New Yorkers, we're strong. Texan, it's Texan, we're resilient. It's Boston, we're strong. Bullshit! It's God who gives grace. It's God who delivers. It's God who saves the weak. It is God who deserves the glory and the honor, not man who pats himself on the back in his flesh as if his strength brings him out of disaster. That's nonsense. I've had it with it. I'm done with it. I hate this evil age, and that's why I hate those slogans. When Pittsburgh goes through her disaster, I hope you don't try to give me a Pittsburgh Strong t-shirt I'll preach a message to you. Now. What I like to say after a little tirade like that is pardon my passion. Not. Now. I don't need a pardon. God told me to do that and showed me to do it and did it in me. So how do you like that? God doesn't use language like that. I beg to differ. Read Philippians 3, 7 again someday. Now, I count it but dung. King James Version. So then, God alone commands the bones to live. The bones respond by living. They don't have a choice. Bones live if you're good. Hey, dried dead bones in a valley. Get baptized, and you can live. Get circumcised, and you can live. Live a life of pious, worshipful works, and you can live. No, bones live. The only condition is the condition you're in, which is dead. Live. We were made alive in Christ. We were dead in sins. We were made alive in Christ. The only condition was the condition we were in, which was hopeless and helpless and God doesn't help those who help themselves he helps the helpless so blessed are those who acknowledge their helplessness not their strength because when we're weak God is strong Pittsburgh weak Christ strong how's that one 
Me weak, him strong. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I am weak, but he is strong. Even a baby knows that. So, sometimes I think even animals know that. Reconciliation is a divine action. God was in Christ reconciling. What? God was in Christ reconciling who? The world. To whom? Himself. Reconciliation, a divine action. For those of you that like alliteration, how about another R? As reconciliation is a divine action accomplished by God in Christ for mankind and for creation, all creation in heaven and earth in Colossians 1.20 as well as 2 Corinthians 5.19. How about redemption? Redemption is a divine action accomplished in Christ Jesus for all sinned when Adam sinned being justified or rectified by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. An act of God. God's action. So then, redemption is a divine action accomplished in Christ Jesus. Resurrection is a divine action. I know I tried it, it didn't work. Resurrection is a divine action. The rectification of the ungodly, also known as justification, much better word, rectification. The rectification of the ungodly is a divine action. Why? Because Christ died for the ungodly. So, Romans 4, 5, the rectification of the ungodly is a divine action because at the right time in the heart of human history and at the eschatological and apocalyptic moment of all moments, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans 5, 6, that's everybody. He died the just one, the righteous one, for the unrighteous. That's one dying for all. And if one died for all, then all died with him to be raised with him. Redemption, reconciliation, resurrection, rectification, all acts of God. Salvation is a divine action. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah knew that. The psalmist knew that. Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.6, everybody knows that that knows God. Salvation is of the Lord. So lift your eyes above the storm. Lift your ears above the storm and listen to the voice of the reigning king who comes down to deliver. The voice of the Lord in splendor. Lift your eyes above the storm, above the floods, above the fires, above the drama, and see the Lord, whose voice is above the waters. And that's where you are now. You're above the waters. You're above the floods. Even if you're in them, you're above them, hearing the voice of the Lord. It's the voice of power. It's the voice of the Lord in splendor. 
It's the voice of the Lord, which on the one hand breaks the cedars and shatters the cedars of Lebanon, but on the other hand speaks and a deer gives birth to a fawn. And the fawn grows up and God gives the fawn deer's feet to negotiate the high mountainous places like we've been doing since John 1.1. Through Revelation. And I'm grateful for Jeremy Key and what he recently did on the website. And he put all the notes together and called it Literary Interpretation of Rev the Book. I don't know if you've seen that slider yet, but I didn't realize how many pages of notes I took. 1,878 pages of notes. A little book on Rev. It's a good start. It's a good start. Nobody does a definitive study of any Bible book. There's always more, always more, always more. Nobody does, and that's what the Holy Spirit showed, I think, showed me clearly in my study. Don't think you're going to do a definitive study on Romans, the study of the times. Just do a study that helps the congregation. You're a pastor. Okay. I say to the chief shepherd, yes, sir. So I'll do a commentary on Romans. If I do, I'm not going to try to do the definitive commentary of church history. I'm going to try to do a commentary that helps you out. This is a preview of it. So in closing, remember the Lord. He sits enthroned at the flood. He sits enthroned as king. King, there you can use the word forever. Psalm 29.10. The Lord gives his people strength. And Romans is all about that you may be strengthened according to my gospel. And strength means to endure the adversities of the end time. Strengthened by my gospel. The gospel. Romans 16.25-27. He blesses his people with peace. And peace is the all-encompassing salvation in Messiah Jesus. And his people, those whom he calls my people, eventually is all people. The rejection was God's rejection of them. Although we've seen it has a a double edge, it was their rejection of God by rejecting his son. But God performed the act of rejection. Though, as we have seen, this rejection is connected with hardened Israel's rejection of their Messiah, in whom God on the cross reconciled the world to himself. Thank God, God made Israel reject his Messiah. Thank God his mercy will accept all Israel, including those who rejected his Messiah, because of a blindness that God imposed on them. Curb your enthusiasm, conceited Gentile. You're no better. And neither am I. This is God's severity. Paul said, behold, the severity of God but also behold his goodness. 
Why? In closing, I'll say this. This is God's severity, which is ultimately in the service of his benevolence. Because the severe act of rejecting Israel for a time in history is with a view to their final and total salvation and with a view to the pleroma of the Gentiles and the pagans. It is with a view to the salvation of all. If you want to talk about severity, consider the severity of God in the cross of Christ. God did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all, for us all. And having done that, don't you think he will now freely give us everything? God loved the world so much that he gave his son. He loved his son so much that he gave him the world. He loves us so much in the son that he gives us the universe of proportionate being as our inheritance, not as it is now, what a wreck, but as it is under the restoration of all things. God's severity is in the service of his benevolence. His wrath is always in the service of his love. And his justice is always a rectifying and even creative act. I don't have a clean heart. Create a clean heart in me, said David. It's creative justice. God creates righteousness. He creates deliverance. He creates a new heart. He creates a new person, a new creation. That's what we are. We are made as a new creation. It's God who has made us and not we ourselves. It's God that makes us strong and not we ourselves. If Boston is strong, God made Boston strong. If Pittsburgh is strong, God made Pittsburgh strong. If I'm strong, it's because the strength of Christ is perfected in my total weakness. I have expectations from God. They're very high. They're very high. And my expectations from God will be fulfilled, but then exceeded. That's my confidence. Let it be yours. And you are dismissed. And thanks for your attentiveness. That's all for today.